I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and I'm really glad each of you are here. This, gosh, and I'm loved. I feel loved. Uh, but I'm really glad each of you made a choice to, to be together with God's people. If you're visiting here for the first time, uh, I want to give a special welcome to you and uh, encourage you to fill out the form that's in the bulletin and turn it in, in the, at the visitor's table out in the gathering area. And uh, you can find out some more information about the church, get a tape, and you know, kind of know what we're about, uh, if that's something that is of interest to you. Um, if you would please at this time turn off your cell phones and pagers, and if your baby starts acting up, we have crying rooms in the back where you can still hear the message, but we can't hear your baby, and so we encourage you to do that. Also, a uh, reminder here, please, when you, when you leave, uh, would you take the, your garbage out with you, cups and, and all those sorts of things? Uh, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff that we find left behind here. Uh, but take that with you. The request comes from Lori Peterson, who's in charge of all of our hospitality stuff. Wonderful, wonderful lady. Love her to death. She's, you know, she's a wonderful lady. Yeah, she's, she's getting up there in years, you know, and her back is just not what it used to be. So, you know, she, yeah, it's, it's, come on, do her a favor, all right? And so... <laughs> In the service last night, we sang a tribute to her. Uh, Lori to Lori to Lori to Lori to Lori Peterson. Okay, enough of that. So please remember that. Uh, our annual covenant partner meeting will be May 31st. Now make a note of this. Uh, those of you who are going to have your covenant uh, renewed, this is kind of our version of, of official membership. We regard everybody who's got buy-in here and is spiritually aligned as being a member. Uh, but a covenant partner is someone who is, uh, well, they do a lot of things. Take Discover Woodland Hills Church class, which is on May 10th, and find out about that. But uh, you need to renew your, your covenant vows, and that'll be on May 31st, or some are coming in for the first time. Note that's a Saturday. We usually do it on a Sunday. For a variety of reasons, we're trying out a different venue. So this will be on Saturday, uh, May 31st, 9 to 11. Uh, there are t- ver- some more tours of the youth center that are taking place. You can find out about those in the bulletin. You just walk around that area, this tool that God has given to us and for which we have responsibility to use to impact uh, uh, St. Paul and the surrounding area. And so we encourage you to, it's an eye-opening experience to walk through there and just see how, how much space we have and start to dream what we can do with that. Um, next week, uh, there'll be flowers for Mother's Day on sale as well as donuts for Mother's Day on sale. So if you forget to buy a flower for your mother or your wife, don't worry, just come to church and support the Trinidad mission trip. Uh, that's what it's going for. As I said earlier, May 10th is Discover Woodland Hills from 9.30 to 11.30. This is the intro to Woodland Hills Church. If you want to find out more about what we're about, what we believe, where we're going, and those kind of things, this is the class to take, and it's the first step towards coming, becoming a covenant partner. On May 14th, make a note of this, there is, we're going to have our corporate prayer. Every three months or so, we have corporate prayer. We ask the people of God to come out. We worship together and, and pray, cover all the areas of the ministry in prayer because we believe that everything's got to be surrounded in prayer. It's our primary tool for furthering the kingdom of God. And uh, this in particular, we're going to be praying over the youth center, and, and I may be walking around there, I don't know. But really encourage all who can possibly make that Wednesday night, May 14th, uh, from 7 to 8.30. Finally, um, we have, uh, are in the process of bringing on board another trustee and uh, reaffirming another trustee as well as two overseers. And the Bible says that whenever anyone uh, is, uh, aspires to uh, have that kind of leadership role in the church, this is really the leadership of the church, the overseers and the trustees, uh, they have to be above reproach. And so before they're reaffirmed or before they're brought on, we just uh, make note of their names. And if you have any, any issue with them, any just cause, uh, uh, 
confront them about it and get it reconciled. And if that doesn't work, do Matthew 18 and bring it to us. We want to know. They have to be above reproach. So uh, Jody Kremers will, is, is, uh, gonna be, uh, is being asked to be on, on the trustees. Uh, Wendy Warner is up for reaffirmation among the trustees. Greg Foote is up for reaffirmation on the overseers. And Alan Ames is up for reaffirmation on the overseers. And so if you have anything that you need to get clear with them, you can't lead, you can't follow someone that uh, you don't see as, as leading. So if there's any just cause to think that they're not in leadership, they shouldn't be in leadership, uh, talk to them about it. If that doesn't resolve it, talk to us about it. And we'll take care of it like that. We'll take up the offering. This is our, our pledge uh, uh, Sunday. We've been building up to this for several months. When you came in, you had pledge cards on, the, uh, on your uh, uh, seats in case you didn't bring the ones that you got last week with you. And we'll be taking up that offering as well as our regular offering at the end of the service. Uh, but, uh, so we'll postpone that and dive into the Word. Um, we've been talking about growing in the Spirit the last nine, ten weeks, and, and specifically I've been addressing issues that pertain to this vision that God's laid on our heart. It's a huge one. Um, to, to just make a tremendous impact in St. Paul and Minneapolis and Cambodia and uh, Maplewood and the surrounding area by building a youth center, a hospital in Cambodia, networking with eight ministries that work with the homeless and minister to drug addicts and things like that in St. Paul and uh, paying off a debt to fund, uh, the, the, to staff the, the youth center. It's a huge thing. We've been building towards this. And I didn't plan it this way, but it seems that in the process of, of talking on growing in the Spirit, we've really, it seems to me, just sort of hit on the, the fundamental topics about growing in life, uh, walking individually in, in the Spirit. In other words, the Growing in the Spirit campaign kind of symbolizes uh, what our life's all about. We talked about, you know, stewarding our resources. That pertains not just to... What, uh, how God would lead you to participate in the Growing in the Spirit campaign, but it pertains to all of life. Uh, we talked about having kingdom values and, and uh, living with a view towards eternity, recognizing that, that a lot of life is just about ch- uh, chasing the wind and storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That's not just about growing in the Spirit, that's about all of life. We talked about discerning the will of God. We've asked one thing of people throughout this whole thing, and that is talk to God, let God talk to you, and obey. And that's something that, that should characterize all of our life. We need to be seeking God's will. So we laid out some principles about that. Uh, we talked about the, the natural flow of Christ in us flowing through us and how we know, as I so wonderfully said several weeks ago, we shouldn't be spiritually constipated. And that applies to all of life. And last week we talked about living on the edge, taking risks. Um, Christianity is meant to be an adventure. It applies to the growing in the spirit campaign, but it applies to all of life. And I say all that to say this. This is action day for us. It's been leading up to this. And this also, I think, uh, is something that it applies to what we're going to be doing here today in terms of growing in the Spirit, but it also applies to all of life. Uh, Faith is about seeing a vision. It's about preparing for a vision. But when all is said and done, the rubber hits the road, and it's about acting on a vision. Action. Is, is, is an essential part of, of the Christian life. There's a time to get ready, there's a time to take aim, but then there's a time to fire. There's a time to get on your marks, there's a time to get set, but then there's a time to go. And it doesn't do much good to get ready and get set if you're not going to go, or to get ready and take aim if you're not going to fire. You see, the end result, everything that leads up to this, the end result of it, the goal of it all, has to do with an action. And so I want to talk about action in the Christian life. I want to read from several passages. The first is James chapter 1. Where James says, be doers of the word. Doer, everybody say, doers of the word. 
and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. You don't have to say that. Do the word. Do the word. Are you doing the word? Yo, do the word. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. They look at themselves and going away immediately forget what they were like. And those who look into the perfect law, but those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Interesting phrase. And persevere, being not hearers but who forget, but doers who act. They will be blessed in their doing. Okay? Read uh, James chapter 2. He says, you will do well if you really fulfill, not just hear, not just understand, but fulfill, act on the royal law. And what is the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the perfect law, the law of liberty. So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. I'll unpack all this in a little bit. And then finally, it says in, in uh, uh, 1 John chapter 3, we know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and so also we ought to lay down our lives for one another. God's love is made manifest by what he does. Our love has to be made manifest by what we do. Let's pray. Father, it just seems in my life that it's so easy because it costs nothing to know a whole lot, to hear a whole lot, to see a whole lot, and to do nothing about it. And I suspect, Lord, in varying degrees, that's probably true for most of us in this auditorium. But we pray, Lord, that you would use this word to motivate us, to change us, to make us radical Christian activists. God, not people who walk around with a head full of knowledge and understanding, but people who actually translate that into action. Because that's the bottom line, Father. Do what my words can never do, and that is give them authority to change our hearts and change our minds and change our action. Make us doers of the word, Lord, not just hearers. And I pray, Lord, that this message wouldn't just be one more that we hear and don't act on. I pray, Lord God, it would translate into action and be glorified in this whole process as we make one last final preparation before we take this pledge to fulfill your vision. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Here's what James is getting at with this mirror business. Um, you may have noticed that I have a very, very, very short haircut today. There's a reason for that. Shortest haircut I think I've ever got. See, I, I, uh, I can always tell when my hair is getting long because I get these little, sp my hair's curly. It's, it's really curly. Not as curly as it was when I was a kid, but it's still pretty curly. And, um, and when in the 60s, it was like great because those afros were in. Remember when they used to, those of you who are like 40 and over, they used to have these really giant... <laughs> Afros. Remember the 60s? Oh, no. Who came up with that? I, they, they didn't do that in the other services. <laughs> hey, that was... <laughs> <laughs> Jungle boogie. Ow. Jungle boogie. <laughs> Get down, get down, get down, get down. Okay. <laughs> Vengeance is mine, saith the senior pastor. <laughs> they didn't do that the other services. I don't know where they got that. Okay, that was cool. Now, if you, if you try to do that when you're 45 in the year 2003, it's not so cool, especially when you, uh, can't, you can't cover the territory. You're better off not trying. So now I wear it pretty short. So I try to keep it trim, but you see, when it gets longer, it starts turning into that. 
uh, it, you get a little, like, springs. I call them boingers. They just boing out here, you know. A little spring there. I look like a little Medusa, you know. And, and I, I, I water it back. I comb it back. I try to keep it down. But eventually, boom, it comes out again. Another one comes out again. And I know they got gels that you can put on it, but I never remember to buy that stuff, and it's too fancy. I'm a water and comb kind of guy. So I, I comb it back, and it, it starts springing out. I look in the mirror, and I see this. Oh my gosh, I've got to go to get a haircut because I'm getting the little bing, 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 bing all over the place. But then I go out and I forget. And, and, and it's like, it's not part of my normal routine. So I, I for, then at night I look in the mirror, it's like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to get a haircut. It's really getting kind of, you know, boingy, so I, I need to get a haircut. Next morning I look in the mirror and think, okay, I got to get a haircut. I go throughout the day, it's not part of my normal routine. I forget, I don't get a haircut. And I went about three weeks like this, four weeks. It's like, man, this is really getting kind of nasty. You probably couldn't tell because I really kind of comb it down before I preach. But throughout the day, it's just kind of like, ding, 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 ding. Well, I, I did a, 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 uh, a debate last week uh, out at UCLA. I was debating a member of the Jesus Seminar, uh, the liberal think tank that thinks Jesus is just a legend. That's this huge debate, UCLA campus. And just before I was leaving to go to the airport, I looked in the mirror and it's like, this is frustrating. This looks so silly. I, and I can't, you know, keep it down any longer. And I don't want to go in front of all these college students and lose credibility because I got boings coming out of my hair. So I grabbed a clipper. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this can't, how hard can this be? I mean, come on. Save 13 bucks. So I, I, uh, I, I, I said, it. Oh, that, that looks about right. And just kind of, you know, did, did the little job. I didn't want to do anything on the top, though, because I don't have that much hair to start with. So I just cut the, 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 the sides, you know, as short as I could. Uh, but I couldn't quite evenly get the back. So I had boingers coming out the back. My sides are really nice and, 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 and straight. But my top looks like a carrot top. And that's as good as I could do. And then I had to go to the airport. And I show up. I, my Paul Eddy, my friend, uh, and he's also on the, on, on the board here. He's kind of like my theological advisor. He went with me to UCLA. And um, well, I asked him when I showed up. I go, how does it look? I, I gave myself a haircut. And he, <laughs> he's a gracious guy. He says, well, um, you know, it, uh, it kind of fits that eccentric, genius, professorial, disheveled look. I think that's, I, I, th- I think it will work for you. And I'm thinking I had more of the GQ look in mind, you know, but, so I had to get it cut again, and this time they had to take it all off. Now, what's the point of all that? The point is that when you look in the mirror and see something that needs to get done, it doesn't do you a bit of good unless you do something about it. You see, you go away the same, and you forget it, and it, it's, it's of no value. The point of looking in a mirror is not an end in and of itself. I don't care how vain you are. You know, when, when, when you see stuff that needs to be changed, you see who you are and then see how you should act on the basis of what you see how you are. Well, th- th- do something about it. That's the, the point of the whole thing. James is saying the same thing about faith. He's saying you can hear the word, read the word, study the word, memorize the word, but the, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Uh, how does it translate into action in our life? Now, let me break it down a little further. What is the, the, the mirror that he's talking about here? It is the word of God, but more specifically... The whole word of God is summed up in the royal law, what he calls the perfect law. Um, The law of liberty, it is the law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. That in the end is the mirror that we're to look at. John even goes further and says, because the whole word of God is summed up in in the law of love, and the whole word of God therefore points to Jesus Christ, who is the one who incarnates that love. The mirror that we're to be looking at is the mirror of Jesus Christ. 
because here we find out who we really are. What, we, we here see our true identity as opposed to whatever identity we inherited in the world. We see that we are people of God, loved by God with an unsurpassable love. Uh, we are filled with his spirit, filled with his love. And with that perception of the mirror comes a mandate about how we should live, live according to ourselves, according to who we truly are as, as defined in Christ Jesus. The mirror is Christ Jesus. The law is love. Now let me break it down a little further. He says that the law is a law of liberty. And that's an interesting concept. We don't normally think of laws as liberating. Usually we think of laws as restricting. How is this a law of liberty, a law of freedom? And the answer is that it's a law. The law, the command, thou shalt love, is a law of freedom because it sets you free doing it. So when you look at the mirror of Jesus Christ and see who you are and see what God paid for you to make you who you are and realize what your true nature is, when you act on that, when you live in accordance with that, it sets you free. To the extent that we don't act on what we know to be true and who we really are in Christ Jesus, we stay in bondage. We live as though it was not true uh, that we have this new identity in Christ. We stay in bondage. And the very act of seeing who we are and the very act of then acting on who we are sets us free. It's a law of freedom. It's not the ought, should, better do, gotta do where you're trying to get life on the basis of what you do or earning brownie points on the basis of what you do. It's rather the freedom of being able to be who you are in Christ Jesus, to do who you are in Christ Jesus. You look in the mirror and then you act accordingly. Note also here that love is defined by pointing us to Jesus Christ, and it has an inextricable verbal quality to it. A verb is an action thing. God defines love not abstractly, not theoretically, not hypothetically. He defines it by doing something. Love is always a verb. God shows his love for us by dying for us on a cross, and then he says, live likewise. You can't do that without having verbs that manifest love in your life. It's not an abstract thing and not, not a theoretical thing. It's about an action. Love is most fundamentally about ascribing worth to another, right? God ascribes to us unsurpassable worth at cost to himself. He shows what we're worth by what he's willing to pay for us. And then he tells us that defines who we are. That's the mirror. That's the criterion that we look at. And on the basis of that, we're supposed to go out with a changed life, with a different set of actions, a different way of life that reflects the truth of who we are. You can't do that without having a verb. It's about what we do on the basis of who we are. Finally, note that James says that we are to live and we are to speak as people who will be judged by this law of freedom. And that's an odd concept. How are we judged by the law of freedom? But what he's really getting at there, most basically, is, is this. When, we, when you die, when you die, as we said several weeks ago on, on Easter Sunday— the only thing you take with you, the only thing about you that's not dust, the only thing that's not trans transitory, contingent, temporary, is the essence of who you are in Christ Jesus. Paul says it's the foundation of Christ Jesus in 1 Cor Corinthians 3, and what you've done on the basis of that foundation. In other words, it's the mirror and what you've done after you've looked in the mirror. The acts of love are the one thing about you that's eternal. Everything else is chasing after wind. We will all go through this refining fire, or as I said on Easter morning, the, the, the cremation, and everything that's inconsistent with the kingdom of God, everything that's inconsistent with Jesus Christ, everything that's inconsistent with love is burned away, and the love goes on. So James says, live with that in mind. Look into that mirror, that eternal mirror. See the big picture and let that uh, determine, let it condition what you do, what you say, how you live. It's all in the end about love. The central thing in the Christian life, then, is a verb. 
It's the verb of love. And all that we do, there's a time to prepare. All that we do, there's a time to pray and a time to plan. But all that we do has got to be geared towards this. And this is the bottom line. This is the paycheck. In the end, it's about how it all translates into our action. How do we impact the world? The central aspect of the Christian life, then, is about doing acts of love. Looking in the mirror and going away, not forgetting that, and doing acts of love. This is why Jesus says that the defining characteristic of the Christian life has got to be love. By this, he says in John 13, people will know that you're my, my, my disciples. Because you got so much knowledge? No. Because you look so impressive? No. Because you got it all together? No. Because you hand out tracts and tell people you're Christians? No. It's by your love. As they see the verb in you, they know the truth of the verb in God. It's by your love that they will know that you're disciples of the lover of people's soul. It's, it's the bottom line. It's the central point. It is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is the all or nothing of the Christian life. We spent a lot of time on this last year. It's the all or nothing of the Christian life. Have this and you get everything. Don't have this and you've got nothing. I don't care what else you have. That's what he's arguing in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, he says. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But if you don't have love, if it's not motivated by love and doesn't result in love, if it doesn't result in a verb that impacts the world, it's altogether worthless. And you can have prophecy, the golden tongue, and proclaim God's truth so eloquently, but if it's not motivated by love and doesn't result in love, if it's not a stepping stone to what is the ultimate goal of the Christian life, and it's altogether worthless. And you can have all knowledge, he says, and all wisdom, and know all mysteries. That's impressive. We want to sit at your feet. You're smart. You're, you're brilliant. Wonderful. But if it's not motivated by love, and if it doesn't result in impacting the world for love, it's altogether worthless. A clanging symbol, a noisy gong, doesn't accomplish anything at all. And you can have faith that can move mountains. You can have faith that can do miracles. You know, you, you can just be impressing the socks off of people. You can build a mega church and get a crowd around you. But if, if it's not motivated by love and doesn't result in impacting the world for love, it's altogether worthless. The mere the criteria that Paul holds up, the sine qua non, the, the end all, the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life that he holds up is love as defined by the person of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is all those things, as good as they are, knowing all knowledge and having all understanding and being able to prophesy and having faith to move mountains and speaking in tongues and other gifts of the Spirit, good stuff. But they are not an end in and of themselves. They are to be tools, used as tools, by which God uses you to impact the world. They are to impact you for love and then through you impact the world for love. And that's the bottom line. That's where the rubber hits the road. That's the goal, the point, the criteria for everything that the Christian life is about. Get that, you got everything. Don't get that. You've got nothing. It doesn't matter what else you think that you've got. I think a lot of people define Christianity as a belief system. They think that Christianity is about holding all true beliefs, or at least holding certain true beliefs. Like that was an end in and of itself. And people who believe this will spend extraordinary amounts of time making sure that you believe all the right things. And if you don't know what the right things are, you just ask them and they'll be glad to tell you. And so the Christianity becomes, the church becomes sort of a club of right believers. And they'll spend a lot of time making sure that everybody on the inside believes all the right things and the people on the outside who don't agree are, are, are on the outside. And uh, there's a lot of anger that might come up if, if someone disagrees with them or whatnot. But the idea here is that God is pleased to have people walking around with a lot of facts between their ears. Like that's an end in and of itself. Like that's the goal. Now truth is, is good. Theology is good. I'm for it. Study it. Let's debate it. Let's dialogue. You know, that's, uh, that's a good thing. You want to believe truth. Who wants to go around believing lies? Strive for that. 
But I submit to you that that is not the end in and of itself. A body like Woodland Hills or any local church needs to have some common agreed upon uh, views of the world and views of God and understandings of the Bible. But the goal isn't to have sort of the compendium of complete truth. The goal is to have enough in common so we can get the job done. But the point of having in common is so you can get the job done. It's not an end in and of itself. You can have every right belief there is to have, but if you don't have it motivated by love with the goal of transforming the world in love, what good does it do you? Zippo. Maybe you're the one person on the planet that's got it all down just right. Wonderful. You've got your ecclesiology. Boom. You're the one right person on the planet. And your eschatology, you've got the book of Revelation figured out and then some. And, and, and your pneumatology, your doctrine of the spirit. And your angelology, your doctrine of angels. And your, your, your soteriology, your doctrine of sin. And every ology anyone could ever mention. You're the one person on the planet who happens to have it all just right. Wonderful. We, we, we applaud you. But the question is this. What difference is it making? How is it impacting your life and how is it impacting the world through you? And if the answer isn't love, then it doesn't do you a bit of good. It's all just facts in the head. Just facts in the head. Beliefs and the gifts and everything else that Christianity might be about, they're not ends in and of themselves. What, what, it counts, what counts as being a success in the kingdom of God. In the end, it's not that you've collected all the true facts. Ah, that's, that's important, but that's not, that, that's not, that's not success. A church isn't successful because everybody agrees on everything. That's not success. It's not successful because, uh, because you got a nice sermon, you hear a nice worship service. That's good, but that's not success. You got the best programs, you make people feel real welcome, you got good parking spaces, your children's program works really good, your youth program's just honking. Uh, that's good, but that's not success. Getting a lot of people to attend, you got a big church, you're the fastest growing church in America. That's, you know, impressive, but that's not success. The question, when all is said and done, the criteria that follows from looking into the mirror is a verb. And the verb is this. What are you doing to impact people's lives with love? And what are they doing to impact the world with people with love? Are people seeing Jesus Christ in your life? That's the criteria for success, and it's the only one that matters. It's resulting in a verb. It's about action. So James says, look into the mirror and do something with it. Act on it. If you see that your hair needs to get cut, well, then, then, then cut your hair. If you look in the mirror and you see you got whiskers on your face and you don't want them there, well, then cut them off. If you look in the mirror and you've got uh, pimples because you ate some chocolate, don't forget that and stop eating chocolate. You look in the mirror and you're a little overweight and that bothers you, well, then, then remember that and, and start exercising. The point of looking into a mirror is to do something with it. So it is, James is saying, with faith. Faith that only looks in the mirror... But he doesn't translate into action. He says, is dead. Here's how he puts it. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if, if uh, you say you have faith but do not have works? If you don't do anything with it. Can faith save you? And what he's saying is that, can that faith without works save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, no doubt with a pompous voice, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill. And yet you do nothing to supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now, it's important to get this teaching down and not misunderstand it. James is not saying that faith plus works produces life, saves you. He's not saying that. As though he was contradicting Paul, who says that our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ alone does save us. All right? 
He's not saying faith plus works. As though, as though the goal of the Christian life was to earn brownie points, get merits, you know, do good deeds to get God to like you a little bit more. That, that, that's absolutely contradictory to everything that the New Testament's about. What James is saying is this. Faith that is alive produces works. Genuine faith produces works. Now, if you've got a mere theoretical faith, a sitting-on-the-bench kind of faith, a, 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 a you know, just cerebral intellectual belief, well, the devil has that, and it doesn't do him a bit of good. He's got, um, he knows more theological truth than you ever will. And so that kind of faith is dead. But faith that is alive produces works. The point is really rather obvious if you think about it. You can tell the difference between something that's alive and something that's dead because the things that are alive do verbs. They, they, they do things. Dead people don't, or dead things don't. I, I, a number of years ago, uh, when my son, who was seven at the time, first started collecting rabbits, for the last eight years we've collected rabbits. Cute little animals that stink to high heaven unless you clean them all the time, and that's a hassle. But he loves the rabbits, so we have rabbits. Uh, if you want to buy a rabbit, see me after the service. <laughs> Okay, well, our first rabbit died. Uh, I might have had something inadvertently to do with this, but uh, it, it, uh, it died. And my son, who was seven or eight at the time, was traumatized. Now, now he has an incredible capacity to deny reality. Uh, he, you know, if, if reality doesn't conform to his expectations, you forget reality. And so he didn't want to believe his bunny was dead. And so we're out to look at the bunny, and the bunny's like, I'm doing that thing. I said, Nathan, it's dead. It's dead. We got to bury it. And he said, no, it's not dead. It's sleeping. I don't know if you ever saw that, uh, like, Monty Python thing where they got a parrot and they're trying to prove that it's dead. (laughs) It's just sleeping. Well, do sleeping parrots do that? Well, with this, I I took a little, I took a little, I I gave it a death litmus test and I I, I poked it with a little stick. I said, okay, Nathan, look at Rabbits, when you poke them, they move. This bunny didn't move, so it must be dead. And, and living rabbits, you know, they, they breathe. Their noses go up and down really fast. So cute. You, you like that, don't you? Well, this bunny's nose isn't moving. And the eyes usually are open, at least after you poke them, but this uh, bunny's eyes aren't open. And uh, bunnies will hop and jump and skip and eat and poop, but this bunny doesn't do any of those things. The bunny's dead! <laughs> and so I picked it up and started, would a living bunny do this? <laughs> no, <laughs> only kidding. I didn't do that, didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> What about this? What a living bunny? No. And I was giving my son a, a basic lesson on telling the difference between something that's alive and dead. Living things do, thing, do stuff. That's how you know that they're alive. So it is with faith. A faith that is alive is a breathing faith. It's an eating faith. It's a doing faith. It's a transforming faith. A faith that doesn't do anything is as dead as, as saying, be warm and well fed to someone who's starving and cold and doing nothing about it. A faith that doesn't result in any kind of action is as dead as looking in a mirror and seeing you need a haircut but never getting around to, to getting a haircut. A faith that, is, that isn't alive is as dead as a bunny that, that's not breathing. The goal of the church, the goal of the Christian life is to have a living faith. And you can tell a living faith because it actually impacts the person who has it and through them impacts the world. We aren't saved by good works. That would presuppose an accountant deity who's not interested in people but behavior. We aren't saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 2. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, he didn't just create us in order to do things. He loves us as we are. He, he changes us. He transforms us. But the result of that, the goal of that, is that we will now live a different way. 
And so he says, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. God's goal in creation from the start was to have a people who receive his life, are transformed by that life, and then do that life on the outside. We are to be, administrate God's providence here on the planet Earth. That was the goal all along. We're to receive, uh, embody, and reflect his love. We are to do godly things, to, to be his hands and feet here on the Earth. The goal of humanity, and this is what the church uh, uh, re-expresses through Christ Jesus, the goal of humanity is to apply God's will on Earth as it is in heaven. That means doing the work of God, which is good works, works that are good, works that are loving, making an impact, making a change in the world. The bottom line is that we are created and we are saved for a certain way of life, and that way of life most centrally is defined by the royal law, the law of liberty, the law of love, looking in the mirror of Jesus Christ. We are created and we are saved to have as part of our way of life, loving all people at all times and all situations, no ifs, ands, and buts. We are created to, to, to love the loveless. We're created to outrageously love our neighbor, even if they're nasty to us. We're created to love our, uh, to, to love our enemies. We're created and saved to give hope to the hopeless and bring, bring meaning to those who feel life is meaningless and to care about those that no one else would care about, to reach out and bring on the inside those that are, who experience their life on the outside, especially on the outside of religion. As Jesus did, our job is to reach, to care about that, to do, to be involved in the verb. Our way of life is to be defined by these kind of actions, to, to care about giving food to the hungry and water to the thirsty and sheltering to the homeless and, and visiting uh, people who are in prison and caring about the sick even if they're in Cambodia. Our way of life is to be characterized by outrageous love, which is about good works. It's about caring about teenagers who maybe are pregnant. We want to be there to help them and caring about teenagers when they're on drugs and we want to help them and caring about teenagers when they're lost and don't know what life's all about and we want to help them and when they need a father, we say we'll be a father. When they need a mother, we say we'll be a mother. When they need a counselor, we say we'll be a counselor. It's about in every way, shape, and form demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ to all people at all times and all situations. And the bottom line is verb. What are you doing to impact people? It always amazed me that in Matthew 25, on the judgment day, Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats. Some of you have read this passage. And the criteria that he brings up to separate the sheep from the goats is not whether or not they believe all true things. He doesn't appeal to that at all. What he appeals to is this. He says to the sheep, go into the kingdom of my father because when I was in prison, you visited me. You did something. When I was hungry, you fed me. You did something. You sacrificed for me. When I was naked, you clothed me. You did something. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. You did something. You know, when I was outcast, you brought me in. You did something. And he's not saying there, okay, you've got enough brownie points to get into heaven. As though God was this pathetic accountant. That's not, not the point. What he's doing is though he's looking at the action as evidence of a living faith. The faith is what saves you, but it issues forth in the action. Looking in the mirror, the, the point of it is to go out and, and live in a different way, the, this different way of life. We are called to be a people in the kingdom of God who in, in word, thought, and deed manifest the love of God. That's one of the reasons why we're, we're about tearing down walls, because walls are the opposite of love. And it's one of the reasons why we want to network with, with, with uh, uh, churches and in in, in ministries in St. Paul. And it's about tearing down denominational walls and, and cutting down the, 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 the racial walls and, and, and to, to manifest the truth of the kingdom in which there is no social strata and there is no race and we don't have the injustice of, of preferential treatment. It's where we all are defined in Christ Jesus and our job is to manifest it, but it takes sacrifice and it takes doing a verb. It takes action. 
in every way, shape, and form. We are called to just be people who are defined by the core of our being by love, and you can't be that without demonstrating an action. Love is a verb. We're to wake up in love and go to sleep in love and to live in love and to eat in love and to drink in love and to breathe in love and to, and to pray in love and to dance in love and to embrace in love and to forgive in love and to go to church in love and to worship in love and to go to the grocery store in love and go to the bathroom in love. Everything that we're supposed to be doing is to be characterized by love. That's who we are. When you look in the mirror, that's what you see. But it doesn't do anything unless you go out and act on it. How does it impact your life and through you impact the world? Let me say one more thing about it. James says this in in chapter 1, verse 25. We read it earlier. He says, Doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. The hearers who don't act aren't blessed. The doers who act will be blessed in in their doing. And hear my heart on this. There is an inclination on all of us to be spectators. It's easier. It doesn't cost you anything. And we live in a culture that, that, that systematically conditions us to take the easier, convenient, non-sacrificial route. But I want to just, as strongly as I can, encourage you to resist that pull that's on all of us. Because you are missing out on such a blessing if you're a bystander, bench-warming, spectator kind of a believer. There's a blessing that comes involved when you get in the game, when you actually are, are, are in the playing field, you're part of the army, your hands are getting dirty, you're in the trenches, you're taking fire and you're giving fire. There's a blessing that comes with that that you other, otherwise will never experience. Because when you are acting, when it's actually impacting you and impacting the world through you, you begin to experience, this is what you were created to do. This is the meaning of life. This is the, this is the reason why you exist. You, you, there's a peace that comes because you're acting in congruity with who you really are. There's a joy and a power and an anointing that comes when you make the decision to act. It takes risk. It takes boldness sometimes. It certainly takes sacrifice and inconvenience. But when you do it, there's a blessing that you can never get any other way. It's a, once again, what Jesus says when he, when he says, if you lose your life, give your life away, be involved in that loving activity, ascribing worth and thought, word, and deed to others. When you do that, you'll find your life. And boy, it's a joyful thing to find your life. To find your life. There's a blessing there that you never otherwise would get. You, the, the joy of knowing that your life counts. You make a difference. You, see, you participated in something that's going to impact thousands of lives. You made a difference. You, you, you helped this person. You said this. You did this. You, you were willing to go out of your way. You sacrificed this way. And just knowing that your life counts. Uh, that's what you were created for. You're being used by God. You get the, uh, the chance to show, see God show up. And you begin to live in the reality and the adventure that is supposed to be Christianity. That's joy. There's also blessing in other ways. The Bible gives us all these promises about when you get involved in this, it comes back on you. When you're faithful and little, God makes you faithful over much. And you get to enjoy it, but you get to bless others with it. It's, it's a loop. It's a cycle. Give and it will be given unto you, Jesus says in Luke 6. 6. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, promise after promise, you get involved in this loop and it comes back on top of you. God wired the universe to bless those who live in self-sacrificial love because that's the point of the whole thing. And so it's not a magical formula to get rich, but it is a principle of life. You find your life when you lose it. If you're not living in that mode, you miss out on all that blessing. You're living in contradiction to yourself. You're living to, to grab, to, to, to try to find your life, and the result is that you lose your life. A lot of times I think people, see, when, you, when, you, when you're holding on to a dead faith, dead things, they do do one thing, and that is decompose. 
and, and you'll begin to smell the decomposition because you're living contrary to, to, to the nature that Christ gave you when you put your faith in him. And it can manifest in a lot of different ways. One way it manifests is a sense of boredom. Christianity's boring. It's just like, there's nothing going on here. It's like we just go to church, we sing a song, we hear a sermon, go home. Go to church, sing a song, hear a sermon, go home. And, you know, it, and, and there's a sense of unreality with that, boredom. And the reason is because you've got inside you a living action hero figure. His name's the Holy Spirit. And he, he, he's inside of you and he wants to do action. This whole thing, the point of the whole thing, everything else is just warm up till we get to this. Act, do stuff, make a difference, sacrifice. And, and, and he's there trying to push you in that, but if you're like just resisting it, you look in the mirror, he, ta- he calls you, he talks to you, you, you look in the mirror, but you go away just the same and your life kicks on that routine. You're bored with church, you're bored with Christianity, it's a boring thing. You got the fire insurance program and you're just gonna hang on to a boring kind of religion until you die and, and hope you make it. That's not what it's all about. Not even close. Another way that it gets, uh, it gets uh, uh, manifested is, is, is people who... Uh, do the non-action kind of deal, uh, oftentimes they, they, they develop a cynical, critical spirit. Uh, they're the ones who, they never actually do anything, but they always criticize the people who do. And it's because they have an impulse that says, I'm supposed to be involved in this, but they're not willing to do it, so they just sit back. And it's kind of like a vicarious participation by being the professional critic of those who do. And I always, my response to that is always, listen, if you can do it better, by all means. You know, please, I would gladly step aside. You see, because when, when, when you get involved, when, when you're on the front lines, when, you, when you're really, are, when you're doing the word instead of just hearing the word and criticizing others on the basis of the word that you think you know, when you're actually involved, you really don't have a lot of time, first of all, to notice other people's imperfections and time to criticize other people's imperfections. You get involved in the real word. You, re- you begin to realize how complex things can be, how difficult things can be. You get humbled by that and you're less prone to, to criticize others. People who have got too much time on their hands get into trouble, just like kids. That's why Christians shoot at themselves so much. Where do we find the time to shoot at our brothers and sisters? You know, this friendly fire, it's the most deadly thing in Christendom. Well, it's, it's, it, there's an impulse inside of people that says we're supposed to be shooting somebody. You know, it's that warrior inside of you. You're made, you're part of the army. You're supposed to be on the, in the attack mode. That's that action figure inside of you, the Holy Spirit, saying, gosh, we, we ought to be fighting, we ought to be shooting, we ought to be doing something. This is all boring. We ought, to, you know, we ought to be involved in some serious activity here. But if you're not on the front line shooting the enemy, you know what? You start looking at one another and you start shooting at one another. But friends, we're in a war and in a battle where the stakes are high and we don't have time to waste ammunition on one another. You know, there's a job that we need to get done. Amen. Until the last person on this planet is loved, until the last prostitute is felt accepted, until the last hunger kid is fed, we don't have time to be majoring in the minors and shooting at one another. We need to have a core set of things we agree upon, but that's not an end in and of itself. The purpose of that is to get a job done, and the job is spreading the kingdom of God throughout the world. Amen. If you're in the inactive mode, you're missing, you're missing the blessing. You're missing the blessing. Oftentimes, people who are on the, on the inactive list are prone to doubt because they're always saying, where's the reality? It just feels like, it just feels like a belief system. And, and where's the reality? And the answer is that I, I can understand why you feel it's unreal because you're not living the reality. Christianity is not a belief system. It has beliefs. But in the end, it's about a transformed life that transforms lives. 
And so if, if it feels unreal, they're prone to perpetual doubt. And I think that if they ever get it figured out, well, then they'll get involved in the game. But you know what? Getting involved in the game is one of the ways that you'll figure it out. And the reality comes to you. God, God comes to you when you're on the front lines and his reality shows up. If you're in perpetual doubt, I encourage you to get involved, get involved. Sometimes people say, you know what, I'm, I'm too wounded to, to be on the active list. And I, I just need to recover. And I want to affirm that. There's a time to recover, a time to rest. If you've been in a system where you've been conditioned to uh, do things only on the basis of getting a carrot at the end of the stick, getting a little reward from God, a little brownie point, and earning your way to heaven, or at least the approval of the pastor and other Christians, there's a time where you need to stop just to get rid of the addiction. Okay, so you, you take a break from that. There's a time where you just rest. You need to learn how to get love for free, soak it in for free, enjoy God for free, just sitting. But know this, the purpose for going into a hospital is to eventually get out. <laughs> and it can happen that you get addicted to that hospital bed, and that's not good for you. You start developing bed sores. You, you know, your, your leg needs to rest sometimes to get healing, but at a certain point, the way it goes further in healing is to start walking on it. And so it is in the Christian life. One of the ways that you get healed is by getting involved in the action. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, the, you'll find that, that your own issues take on a different perspective when, when you get involved in the issues of others and you get involved in the life and the action of, of, of living out the Christian walk. When we sit around and aren't involved in the lives of others and self-sacrificial love, our, it's like looking at a splinter on your finger. It's like it just gets worse and worse the more you perseverate and look at it. And before you know it, it feels like cancer all over your body. But, but if, 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 if uh, there's a kid who just get, got hit by a car and, and, and you run out there to help him, you know what? You're not going to even be thinking about that little finger. See, it gives you a perspective when you get involved. One of the healthiest things you can do is to get involved in life and see through action the, the issues that others face with, and all of a sudden, your own issues begin to take on a different perspective. There's a time to take aim, it's a time to get ready, and then there's a time to fire. Today's kind of a firing day for all of us. The question I want to ask is this. How is God calling you to act? And I'm just going to say it straight here, Okay. Uh, it's not a question of if God's calling you to act. He's always calling you to act. Oh, maybe you're on a temporary leave of absence on an inactive list to get healed. Take it, but always know that the point is to get back into action. Where's God calling you? What's God calling you to do? Is your faith, let's say it as plain as we can say it, is your faith living or dead? Is it something that is actually has feet to it or is it caught between your ears? Uh, is it just a belief system? Ask it this way, if, if you weren't a Christian, if you weren't a disciple of Jesus, how would your life be different? If you didn't have faith, what would you be doing that you're not now doing and what would you not be doing that you're now doing? What actual impact does your faith have? Or ask it this way, the world that you intersect with on a daily basis, how is that world different? How is, how is anything different because you're a disciple? See, it's something that is supposed to be seen. And I encourage you to listen to God and to act on it. It may be that many here, or at least some here, God has been calling you to action in a certain area, but you've been resisting it. Maybe you'll get it. It's like me with a haircut. Well, I'll get around to it. Right now, I'm kind of busy. I'll do that, you know, someday, somehow, some way. And you never get around to it. Maybe God's calling you to be involved in children's ministry or to help out at a nursing home or a homeless shelter or to give food at the Ramsey County Center or, or to be involved in uh, you know, acts of kindness or to get involved in a small group. Or maybe God's telling you that there's a, th a thing in your life that it's time for you to grow out of and, and he's been moving you there, there and you got the idea and you've been thinking about it. Maybe you've even been praying about it, but maybe you've been doing that for five years. It's time to act. The plane needs to go down the runway for sure, but the purpose of going down the runway is to take off. When are you going to take off? God's calling us to take off. It's time to fly. 
It's time to get going. It's time to act. Time to put some feet to our ideas. Time to put some flesh to the bones. It's time to make an actual difference. We do, we do this individually. We're called all individually to, to do this. But we're also, on some areas, called to do it collectively. The, there are some rocks you can push up a hill on your own, but other rocks require a collaborative effort. And I'm convinced the reason why God even in, it came upon the idea of church is because there's a lot of things we can't do individually, but we can do together. And getting things done is what it's all about. We're to change the world. I want to change the world. I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. But together, we can change the slice of the pie that God's given us to change. We can do it together. Amen? And so, more specifically here, God has, the last several months, we've been talking about this Growing in the Spirit campaign. Uh, We've been planning it. Uh, It has the potential to impact thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives, if you think about this. Networking with eight ministries that are about ministering to drug addicts and prostitutes and others in, in St. Paul, feeding the, the, the hungry and, and housing the homeless, uh, working with, with uh, Ephraim to plant this church economic foundation in, in, called the Sanctuary, Sanctuary that will minister to uh, the people of, 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 of Minneapolis and help tear down racial walls and build a bridge between suburbs and the church and the hospital in Cambodia with Wen Tranberg and, and building this youth center that will minister to Christian kids, our Christian kids, but other Christian kids in this area and help bring together the, that, the army of that generation throughout the Twin Cities and build a bridge to the unchurched generation uh, of that age. And uh, uh, it'd be a, a service to the community for kids to hang out with coming under a Christian influence and then freeing up a half million dollars to, to, to staff that whole thing. It's a $9 million project. It's huge. But what a difference it can make. But it takes everybody doing it together. And then that blessing comes back on, on, on all of us. It's all, it's all a nice dream. A nice little hooray. A uh, little, you know, wouldn't it be nice thing until we act. And we've prayed and we've planned. We've tried. We spent three months bringing people on, on vision. And so this was the day that we designated to act. We're going to now take up an offering. It'll be our regular offering that supports the ongoing ministry of the, uh, of the church, but it'll also be the time for you to hand in the pledge cards that we've asked you to fill out. If you haven't done that yet, uh, there, there should have been one on the seat when you came in. And we're, the one thing we've always asked people, we don't believe in gimmicks, cornering people, uh, you know, manipulating in any way. That stuff is just flesh, and it's not part of the kingdom of God. There's only one question that leadership needs to ask, and that is this. What's God telling you to do? Pray, let God stretch you, and then obey. And, uh, and then we all do this together. This is a giant rock, but we can push this up a hill. Following the precedent, as the ushers come forward, following the precedent of First Chronicles 29, uh, I did this last week. I want to do it again. David disclosed his buy-in, his, his willingness to sacrifice for the temple. And he, and he, he made that known to people because leaders have to lead by example. And then all the leaders followed and they gave their collective sacrifice for the temple. The people saw that and were, mo- were motivated and responded. And so uh, it's just, I think, part of leadership for me to say that my wife and I have pledged $30,000 over three years for this campaign. We're hoping to go up to 50, but that depends on the Lord doing some things. Uh, so we, we've pledged 30 We've had 82 responses on the part of leadership, and together they've pledged $1.2 million. Together with what we've already uh, been taking in the last uh, year, we now have $1.6 million. So only 7.4 to go, folks. Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. As we take this up, I want us to see this as an offering. It's an act of worship. Worship is just loving God in an appropriate way. You ascribe worth to God. 
We do it with our words. We do it with our life. We do it with our sacrifice, and that's what this is about. And so as we do this, worship the Lord with it. Uh, We're just going to sing this song. We lift our voices. We lift our hands. We lift our lives. It all belongs to you. And it is our privilege, as well as our responsibility, to be partners with God as he uses us to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. Father, as we take up this offering, I pray that you would be glorified. Be glorified. Be glorified. We've tried to hear. We've tried to listen. Help us to obey and be glorified. We pray, Lord God, that you would use these gifts to not just maintain the ministry of this church, but to bring about the vision that you've laid on our hearts. Bless those who can give and those who can't give, but cultivate in all of our hearts the mindset to act on the basis of what you say and the basis of what we see in your word and be glorified. We offer this up to you in response to what you offered up for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. our voices we lift our hands we lift our lives up to you we are an offering Lord use our voices Lord use our hands Lord use our Oh
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. There's nothing more beautiful in the world than self-sacrificial love. We see the beauty of God and his sacrifice towards us. And when we then replicate that towards others, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. I like to end this way. Uh, well, can we stand? And uh, would you join hands with one another? For those who are in wheelchairs, uh, don't reach across them. But if you just put their hand on their shoulder or grab their hand. Uh, but if you can't stand, stand. And I'd like us to join hands and, and have this prayer of, of this solidarity, uh, of uh, proclamation and confession. This is kind of as close to a liturgy as we ever get around here. Uh, do it in a non-timid way. From the depths of your heart, let's mean it. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are Lord, God, Lord of all lords, King of all kings. And we confess that heaven and earth and all that is in it belongs to you. And we confess that our life, our breath, our thoughts, our time, and our possessions belong to you. But we thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be used by you to spread your word and spread your work throughout this world. It is an honor. It is a privilege to be used by you. And we resolve to move towards all that you have commanded us to do. And as your people, we will let nothing, we will let nothing stand in our way. No principality, no power, no demon can stand in our way. For we stand in Christ Jesus, far above all principalities and our po- all, all powers. And we proclaim that in Christ we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. To you, O oh Lord, be the glory and the honor and the power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. Let's worship the Lord. Let's shout to the Lord. Let's shout to the Lord. Hallelujah.